This morning's sermon text comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 22 to 25. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we have thanked you. We have taken our stand upon you as our solid rock. And we have said to you alone, be the glory. And we mean all that right now, too. We're thankful for your word. We consider it a rock. We want the exposition of it to be a means of your great honor and glory among us now and then in our lives this week. So come and help me. Speak faithfully what the scriptures say. And apply it by your spirit to every mind and every heart in this room. Guard us from the evil one who swoops down to pluck the word off the path when it's not understood. And grant that there would be a safe place here now for another few minutes where the word could lodge itself in our minds and hearts and grow up and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Oh, Father, work, I pray, as you have been working. Save, sanctify, empower, embolden, heal, reconcile. Through Christ I pray. Amen. You cannot love the Bible and despise the mind. It's true that you, if you love the Bible, won't have any rosy notions about the mind that it will save anybody or be the solution to our deepest problems. But you will not be able to turn away from the, the mind and say the emotions or the spirit or action is the key to living the Christian life. If you turn away from the mind, you have turned away from the organ of God's great blessing. I say it for two reasons. One, here we are at the end of Romans 7, and I am finishing today. <laughs> Romans 7. Next Sunday, I'm going to do a big overview sermon of chapters 1 to 7, and then we're going to move into chapter 8. But here we are at the end 
And I am gripped afresh at the incredible demands that this book, inspired by Almighty Wise God, puts on our minds to follow its train of thought. I mean, does that grip you? That this is a demanding book. Surely then, the one who inspired it must intend that we engage our minds, that we not become flaccid and lazy and weak in our mental engagement, and that we apply ourselves to understand what he has inspired. And the book of Romans is not a pushover. It's not late night reading. Therefore, it says something about God's purpose for our minds. Don't lay them aside. Don't veg out in front of the television for 20 years and wake up and wonder why there's no memory left, why there's no analytical powers left, why there's no ability to synthesize or organize or follow a train of thought. And don't rear your children without teaching them how to think critically about everything. How to Make solid judgments on the basis of reasons and evidences and to follow a train of thought that has some becauses and therefores and in order that's in the sentence and teach them God-ordained grammar. God chose prepositions. God chose clauses. It's no accident that Christians build schools as well as hospitals. That's reason number one. Reason number two, I say that you can't love the Bible and despise the mind, is because of what Paul says in verse 25. Let's read that last phrase, just the last half of the verse. On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh... The law of sin. So the instrument, he says, with which I serve the law of God is my mind. With my mind, I am serving the law of God. So don't despise the mind and don't belittle the mind and don't neglect the mind and help your children to grow up not belittling and not despising and not neglecting the mind has an effect on how we do worship. We're believers here in the radical importance of emotion and the radical importance of right thinking about God. To see Him truly and feel Him duly is our passion. So don't throw away your heart. And don't throw away your mind. So let's think a little bit about this verse 25, the second half of it. In the context of the wider effort, this is message six on this unit. I have given you over the weeks nine reasons for believing that the description of the divided man from verse 14 to 25 
is a description of a Christian man, not a pre-Christian man. A converted, saved, justified, born again, spirit indwelt man is being described in verses 14 to 25. Nine reasons I've given you. This man is new and he is old. This man is spirit indwelt and this man has indwelling sin. This man is dead to sin and he must reckon himself dead to sin. Now those who believe that These verses are a description of pre-Christian experience, stumble over this last phrase of verse 25. So I'm giving you now my tenth reason for why I see this text as a description of the, the Christian. Most people who say, no, 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 verses 14 to 25 is a description of of the struggles that you have before you're converted. And after you're converted, you rise above this. Generally take verse 24 and 25 at the beginning as a transition. Here we are. We're coming to the end of the failure passage, the end of the pre-Christian passage. And we're now going To hear Paul say, well then, who's going to deliver me from this pre-Christian experience of failure? Answer, God is through Christ. And now we're into chapter 8 and the triumphant living described there. And and this, this wonderful question, who will deliver me? Is answered, God will deliver me. And he'll take me up. And I will now be delivered by the power of the Spirit from the law of sin and death. And I'm no longer plagued by the flesh and the devil and the world. And I will be triumphant in my living. There's just one problem with that. That's not the end of chapter 7. That's not where he ends. And so the second half of verse 25 is an embarrassment And the stumbling block to people who see this triumphant, victorious statement at the beginning of verse 25 as the climax and transition into the triumphant living of chapter 8. It won't work. Instead, what you find at the end of chapter 7 is exactly what you would expect to find if he were summarizing The Christian life in terms of verses 14 to 24. So then, this is my last statement. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. And he says that. After the triumphant statement at the beginning of verse 25. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God. 
Now notice something. It's not who has set me free from this body of death. Who has set me free. It's who will set me free. And the answer is thanks be to God. He will set me free. And now it does make sense for him to say, and until he sets me free. Finally and decisively at the end of the age or the end of my life. On the one hand, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. And on the other hand, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Victory is coming. It is coming. And until then, I am a divided man. That's what the order of thought says. Not a big transition from 25A to 8, but a heralding of my triumph and then a summary of my conflict. Let's look more closely at this verse, because it's a summary statement of all that he said before. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind... And serving the law of God. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. What kind of life is he describing there? It's not a life of only triumph or only failure. In fact, the point of this verse is not at all to describe what proportion might be failure or what proportion might be triumph. The point here is simply... That there are two principles in my life. He calls them the mind and the flesh. And these two realities exist and explain why I'm not perfect. The culprit is not the law. That's the point he's been trying to make through the whole chapter. The culprit is my flesh, or as he says in verse 17, indwelling sin. Or as he says in verse 21, evil that is present with me. Any one of those descriptions will do. Flesh, indwelling sin, evil, present with me. The point is, those are the culprit and why I am yet an imperfect person. Here's another clarification of this verse that we need to get. He's, he's not saying that mind, the mind, the, the reasoning organ is intrinsically good and the body is intrinsically bad. We have to be very careful here. Because you might just take this verse out of the Bible. Say, with my mind, which is the, the one thing left in me that's not contaminated by the fall. Who? That would be a colossal mistake. Or you might say, the flesh. Since it's contrast with mind, probably means body. Therefore, that's bad. Bodies are bad. And that would be a mistake. So what what is he what does he mean by mind and flesh here? He does not mean when he says, with my mind I serve the law of God, the depraved mind of chapter one, verse twenty eight. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Paul uses that phrase two, three times in his writings. That's not what he means. Depraved minds don't serve the law of God, and yet we all had one and have one. Well, what mind does answer Romans 12, too. Remember? That's a real familiar 
Don't be conformed to this age. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God and serve him. You can't serve God with your mind until your mind is renewed, according to Romans 12, too. That's the mind he has in mind. With my renewed mind, my mind that is being renewed by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, I serve the law of God. And what about flesh? What does that refer to? It's not body. We know that because, for example, Galatians 5.20, when talking about the works of the flesh, works of the flesh includes things like strife, jealousy, anger, envy, not just immorality, impurity, sensuality. Those are mental, emotional sins, not just physical sins, and the flesh is the origin of those. So what is flesh? I would put it like this. Flesh is the untransformed part of Paul's old nature. It might come to expression through the body, so he could call it the body of sin. It might come to expression through the mind, so you even have a phrase in Colossians 2.18 like this. The mind of the flesh. The mind of the flesh. So flesh is that untransformed aspect of my fallen nature that is harassing me all the time, trying to bring me down. So, this clarification goes like this. Don't ever elevate the mind to the level of perfection, as though it's unfallen and undefiled. And don't ever lower the body as though you would make it intrinsically evil. The flesh can express itself through the mind. The flesh can express itself through the body. Our war is not against our bodies mainly. It's against the flesh that can set up operations there and against indwelling sin and against evil and the devil and the world. So what Paul's saying here, let's see if we can put it in a summary statement. Paul's saying, my life of obedience to God comes from a mind being renewed by the Spirit so that I can prove what is the will of God. And when I fall, when I fail in thought or feeling or word or act, it is the flesh, that old fallen Nature harassing me and getting the upper hand temporarily. I think that's the summary of his life. That's the summary of the unit. Now let's step back and ask how we should live in view of this biblical realism of Romans 7. How then should we live? And I want to draw in some other things Paul has said elsewhere. Two things need to be deeply rooted in your mind. At this point, as we come to the end of this unit, two things. Number one, when you believed in Jesus, and if you don't believe in Jesus, may the Lord enable you to believe in Jesus before this service is over. And when that happens, for some of you decades ago, for others years ago, months ago, and for others perhaps in the next ten minutes, when you believe in Jesus... By faith, 
You are united to Christ who died and rose and a decisive, irrevocable death to your old fallen condemned self happened. I use those words carefully. Decisive and irrevocable death happened. To your old self, or you could say a decisive and irrevocable liberation from the dominion of sin happened in your life. Whether you felt it or not, if you truly believed in Jesus. This is all over the place in Romans 6, isn't it? We cannot neglect Romans 6 while we're talking about Romans 7. Verse 6 of Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 14, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Verse 17, thanks be to God that though we were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Chapter 8, verse 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. When you trusted Christ as your treasure, a decisive, irrevocable liberation happened because you died with Christ. That's the first thing that must be deeply rooted in your mind and heart. And you embrace it by faith. That is what happened to me. And I will not let it go. And I won't let Satan rip it out of my heart when I stumble in Romans 7 type experiences. Here's the second thing that needs to be deeply rooted in your mind. Even though a decisive and irrevocable deliverance from the dominion of sin has happened, a final and perfect deliverance has not. And I choose those words carefully. A final and perfect deliverance of my mind and my heart and my body from indwelling sin has not yet happened. Know how you need to know that so that you don't shoot yourself or become arrogant in your presumptuous pride. So, how shall we live with those two convictions in our heart, this double truth? Well, we get the answer by watching how Paul speaks to us about our true condition, our true identity in Christ, and our behavior. How does he talk? Because that'll be our pattern. The way he talks is this. You are a free man. Act like it. You are dead. Reckon yourself dead. He tells you your newness 
who you are, your identity in Christ, and he calls you to become what you are. For example, suppose your besetting sin is anger, which it is for most people. When we did a men's retreat some years ago, anger, when they filled out a a form, was a head of lust in its troubling and widespread attacks on men's lives. Just a seething frustration and anger about all kinds of things. Same would be true of women, I believe. Anger is a very widespread and besetting sin. What would Paul say? He said, affirm in Christ that you have died to the identity of a chronically angry person. Affirm the truth that in Christ, the old, seething, unforgiving, blaming, angry self died. Believe that. It was decisive. It was irrevocable. Not perfect and not final, but decisive and irrevocable. That angry person died. And then look to him. Trust him. Rejoice in him. Rest in him. And fight as a victor against anger. Put it to death. Lay it aside, Paul says. Take another example. What if your besetting sin is heterosexual or homosexual lust? Paul would say, affirm the truth that in Christ you have died to this fallen and distorted identity. You've died to it. It is not you. I recall many conversations with Joe Hallett, who, for the newer people among us, need to know that Joe came out of the homosexual life and for ten years lived among us with AIDS and died. And his funeral, which happened on this stage, was a glorious and wonderful and triumphant event. He would say to me, he helped me draft the position statement that we have as a church on compassion and conviction regarding homosexuality. If you don't know that that paper exists, just one sheet, you can ask for it. We'll make sure you get it. It may be online. I'm not sure. We'll put it there if it isn't. Um, He used to say to me, and he helped me word it very carefully, Whenever I am dealing with a person, I say to them, never, never, never say, I am a homosexual. Rather say, I struggle with homosexual desires. That is not a little grammatical mind over matter trick. That is a profound Echo of God-ordained truth in Romans 6 and Romans 7. 
in Christ, I have died to excesses and distortions in my person. And I will not say that I am decisively and irrevocably a homosexual. In Christ, homosexual, fornicator, adulterer, covetous, thief, alcoholic are not who we are. Affirm, rather, that by faith in Christ, you are new and you are different. And then trust him. Trust his all-satisfying treasure that he is and look to him for help to become as much as is possible. And you don't know how much is possible in this life what you really are in Christ. Joe went way beyond what Joe thought was possible. Some get this far, some get this far, some get this far. I thought I'd be a lot farther along in this mouth being sanctified at 55 than I am. I thought at age 35, 20 years worth of sanctification would change a lot more of what comes out of this mouth towards my wife than does get changed. I hope that the next 20 years of sanctification, if I get it, will result in a more natural and spontaneous, affirming, praising, thanking, delighting mouth will be granted to this fallen preacher. So I can't predict how far we'll make it, but let's go for broke in every possible aspect of holiness of life. Let's close by seeing how Paul says it. I've been paraphrasing for you how he talks about it, and maybe you're taking my word for it, or maybe you're sitting there wondering, does he really talk that way? Does he really say, this is what you are, now become this? And I'm going to close with seven or eight places where he does that. I'm just going to read them so you can hear this pattern, because you don't need to remember all the texts. What you need to remember is the pattern of life, that in Jesus Christ... I am not the old, fallen, sinful, unbelieving person. I am decisively and irrevocably new. And then, therefore, I will become, in practice, what I am in Christ. That's the way Christians fight. They don't fight to get into Christ. They don't fight to get accepted by God. They rest in Christ accepted by God, by faith alone, and then become, through all the stumblings of Romans 7, what they are. Now, I'm going to give you the examples. Here we go. The way it works is there's a a firm statement of newness, and then there is a command to become new. So I'll give the newness statement and then the command statement seven times, or maybe eight. Romans 6.14, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Verse 12, do not let sin reign 
in your mortal body. It will not master you. Don't let it master you. Second, verse 18 of chapter 6. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. Present your members as slaves of righteousness. You became slaves of righteousness. Give your body to being slaves of righteousness. Number three, verse six of chapter six. Our old self was crucified with him. Verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin. You were crucified. Reckon yourself crucified. Number four. Colossians 3, 9. You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Ephesians 4.22, lay aside the old self with its corruptions in accordance with the lusts of defeat. You have laid it aside. You've taken it off like a garment. That's the Greek word. You've taken it off. When you walked through the waters of baptism, you were stripped off of this garment of old self. So, take it off. If you say that's a contradiction, you argue with the Bible. In Christ, it's off. Take it off. It's an act of faith. It's a refusal to let Satan get in your face or your flesh get in your face or the world get in your face and truly identify you as that unforgiving, seething, frustrated, angry person and say, I'll never make any progress in this. That's a lie. And you affirm the truth of what Christ is for you and who you are in him and you take it off. Number five, Colossians 3.10. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness. You have put it on. You were clothed with it in conversion. The moment you believed in Jesus and were enfolded into his righteousness and his wisdom and his redemption and his sanctification. Now, put it on. Number six, Galatians 3.27. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Romans 13.14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody who's been baptized as a believer has put on Christ. He's your identity. Romans 13, 14. Put him on. Get up in the morning and put him on. No presumption here. No automatic Christian life as though, oh, that happened to me, so I don't need to do anything with this mind. With my mind, I will put him on. And with my mind, I will attack the old man and throw him off. 
Oh, when you read the New Testament, what an amazing thing the mind is called to do over and over and over again. Reckon this. Believe that. Set your mind on this. Do it with your mind. This renewed mind is being shaped by the Holy Spirit. Number seven. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 13.14 Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You've crucified your flesh. This Wednesday night when these people are baptized... They die. Symbolically, they're saying by being immersed in this water, and if you're not baptized, obey Jesus. Be baptized. Say publicly before all the church, I'm a dead man. When they walk out on this side and we clothe them with those white robes, the reason their robes are crimson that they wear going in, and we put white robes on them coming out, is to scream this truth. Our flesh is crucified. It's a bloody mess. It's lying in a dead heap. And I am clothed with Jesus. Satan is grabbing at that white robe again and again. Your flesh grabs at it. And your mind, renewed in Jesus, puts it on every morning. Over and over and over again. Last one. I do have an eighth one. I save it for last. It's a little different because I'm going to reverse the order because Paul reverses the order. This text I'm about to read to you, and it's my closing text, is the clearest statement of Paul of this paradigm of the statement of fact of what you are and the command to what you should become. So he Reverses them here. Listen, this is 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It's a very old-fashioned, out-of-date metaphor. And you'll have to just use your mind to adapt. It's, it's a lump of dough and yeast or leaven. Leaven is an old-fashioned word for yeast. And he wants you to be free from leaven, sin... Here's what he says. First Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump of dough. Just as you are in fact unleavened. Can't get any clearer. If you think the other texts were sort of patches with texts that didn't belong to each other, you can't say that about this one. It's all one sentence. Cleanse out the old leaven from Bethlehem. Cleanse out the old leaven from your marriage. Cleanse out the old leaven from your heart, your mind, and your body. Because, Bethlehem, you are unleavened. Oh, if we could learn the key of living the Christian life. We fight. We fight. Oh, do we fight. To put it on, to take it off. To reckon ourselves. But we don't fight as people who are trying to decisively and irrevocably become something we are not. It changes everything in the way you approach your battle. 
You will despair. I promise you, you will despair if you fight to decisively and irrevocably become what you need to be before God. You will absolutely despair. The only hope that you will make any headway in becoming what you ought to be is to recognize you are it already in Him. And if you aren't, we are all hell-bound. And so embrace this great and glorious truth. Let's see if you can sum it up. Let's read the verse again. Verse 25, Romans 7. I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. What does he mean? By the transforming power of the Spirit, I set my mind on the treasure that Jesus is for me. I set this renewed mind on all that God is for me in Jesus. I set this renewed mind on all that I am in Jesus. I set this renewed mind on all that I am becoming through the agency and power of Jesus. And I believe him and I trust him and I act on faith that he will do for me what he promised. And he'll complete the work that he began and he'll make me what I am in him. And if I stumble, which I will. I will not yield to the temptation to deny Christ or deny my true life in him, but I will repent and revel in his forgiveness and fight on. So, even though we're jumping ahead five chapters, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is the will of God and serve him with your mind. Let's pray. Father, help us to get it. The Christian life is a miracle. It's a strange and wonderful thing. These are supernatural realities that we're talking about here. No language games No mind over matter tricks. There is a spiritual, supernatural, Christ-wrought reality in his death and resurrection and reign today that no other religion knows, no psychological processes know, but Christians indwelt by the Spirit know. And I pray that you would grant us to see it, know it, embrace it, Rest in it and fight on the basis of it. Would you stand for a benediction? May the Lord grant you to be so renewed in your minds that you will serve him with your mind and not despair when the flesh gets the upper hand, but will repent and look away from yourselves And trust in the finished work of Jesus and his ongoing labors on your behalf. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.